0: Hi guys, welcome back to another episode, or welcome to another episode of Coming Up Next, the weekly podcast with me, Alistair Marks, where I speak with some of the world's top creatives about how they've managed to create a life of their own design. On today's episode, I speak with theatre director and acting teacher, Chris Edmund. but before we get to that, if you're loving this free podcast... I'd love you to do me a personal favor. Now, I'm not asking you to open your wallets. I'm not asking for any money at all or anything like that. All I'm asking you to do is to go to comingupnext.com.au. On that site, you're going to find the entire back catalogue of Coming Up Next rambles to download for free. So to date, that's, uh, that's 97 episodes of Rambling Good Times and Counting. Now, while you're on that website, what I'd love you to do is click on the iTunes, Stitcher or Podbean buttons, which you'll find, I think, top right. When you're there, I want you to hit the subscribe button and then rate the show five stars, give it an outstanding review and get all of your friends to come to the chat cave with you. You do that for me, I keep bringing you the rambling good times. Boom. How long were you in um, in LA for? I was just there for, I was away a month.
1: Yeah, so a week in Vancouver and three in LA. Okay. Yeah. What were you doing in those places? Uh-huh. Um, it, it's a weird thing. There's um, uh, a Whopper. You know, I worked at Whopper for a long time. I don't know whether you knew all about that. But one of the um, graduates is a guy called Josh Wakeley, and. Um, He's amazingly developed a show that used the Beatles music called Beat Bugs. And getting the Beatles catalogue is kind of unknown. Yeah, you know, incredible. It's quite extraordinary. And also he just got the Motown catalogue. So I, I went over there to help him out with uh, directing the actors, the, the voice direction for the, for the characters. So that was kind of something completely new for me. Yeah, so I spent a week in Vancouver doing that on Beat Bugs and then moved to... Um, la to work on uh, this uh, motown which uses motown songs as, as a basis for each episode so the the beatles uh, the beatles music is used for example you know in beat bugs if it's um you know they cartoon characters their bugs and it's for kids and so you know you might have a little help from my friends and that's about community and looking after one another you know so each episode has got a kind of not a moral exactly it's not moralizing but you know to do with you know how how we com- uh, communicate with one another, how we look after one another, how we support one another. So it's a fantastic show, and it's been already translated into twenty eight languages. I think being shown all over the world. He just got uh, an Emmy just the other the other day when I was still there. He got. um his first Emmy for it. So it's the extraordinary thing. It's amazing. Yeah, it is. It must
0: be very kind of... Uh, I mean, you know, some of the people that you would have seen come through WAPA. Yeah. Because um, you were the head of drama there.
1: I was head of acting there. Yeah, I started off as head of directing and then I took over as head of department uh, for the last 13 years. So I was there 25 years altogether. So oh, I, wow. I trained. Um, and actually, I was brought out from London in 1983 to direct the very first intake. So I had an association for... You know, thirty years. So it's quite an extraordinary part of my life. Amazing. It is, yeah. You must have. Uh, I suppose what I was going to say was
0: that it must be a very kind of gratifying thing for you to see, probably all over the world, people that have come through your doors, so to speak, yes, um, yeah. who are doing just extraordinary things.
1: Yeah, it, it is fantastic, and I think one one thing I really like is um, I, th- I think the kind of ethos or the atmosphere that we try to promote at Whopper. Of, of sort of you know a sense of ensemble was really important so you know egos were left at the door as much as you possibly can and um, I think what I'm really proud of is that wherever people are working in the world people say Whopper graduates are fantastic you know, they're very well trained which you know other drama schools do as well but they're fantastic to work with they're, they're great people as well as being fine actors and um yeah, I mean, you know, man, many of them have got great acting careers. But like Josh, you know, he's writing and producing and creating this series. Uh, you know, got a massive company now in, in L.A. And you know, it's and so from that training, people have you know splintered off and done amazing stuff all over the world as as producers, writers. You know, Eamon Flack, who runs uh, Belvoir Street, the artistic director there, is a, a whopper acting graduate. And those three years, I think, prepare people for, you know, pretty much anything. But also, I, as I said, I'm really proud they're kind of good people, you know.
0: Chris Edmond has directed over 150 productions and has a 30-plus year association with one of Australia's most prominent performing arts schools, WAPA. He's guided some of the greatest actors this country has ever seen from Hugh Jackman to Francis O'Connor and has directed some of the world's greatest plays all while creating his own extraordinary work. You can see his work at chrisedmond.net and be a part of one of his classes at Melbourne's 16th Street Actors Studio. So, what does it take to become a high-achieving creative? And how important is it to be a multifaceted artist? Those questions and many more answered right now. You yourself are a director, yeah teacher, a writer and a painter. Yes. How significant is it for you to not only yourself be multifaceted, but also to kind of instill an idea amongst kind of, you know, new artists, young artists, this idea that, you know, one pathway is not necessarily the only way?
1: Yeah, I think it is really important and I think um to that end at Whopper, although you know it's a three a classical kind of relatively conventional you know three-year training uh, within that I think I tried to you know I like with Josh he wrote works that, that we put on I developed plays um, I think one of the, the things I'm most proud about is the plays that I I wrote in collaboration with the students either I wrote completely or um, sometimes they you know wrote or choreographed or contributed because um, there's, you know we were starting first year with you know kind of themes throwing things about what might interest us or not, and then developed that in second year through research, um, improvisations, beginning to write scenes, trying to put it together, and then put it on in their third year. So it's an incredible you know and the quality was great because they were so invested in it you Know they kind of created and claimed those characters in a way that you never really get the chance to do otherwise. I mean, at Whopper, it's a six week turnaround, you get basically four weeks of afternoons to put on a you know a play, and then it's gone, and you're on to you know the next whatever it might be. So, to actually have that thing of actually investing in you know just the ground, you know, the, that kind of groundwork, the investment in um, you know, creating. Roles for yourselves it was fantastic and had amazing outcomes i'm very very proud of that
0: do you think in today's kind of day and age with you know the accessibility of cameras i mean in fact everyone's got one in their pocket basically and the ability to just upload stuff ad nauseum to the internet that uh, actors kind of have there's a different mindset almost about the kind of entrepreneurial side to creativity.
1: Yeah, I think I think there is, and uh, that's kind of reflected with a lot of the you know recent um, graduates from Whopper who are much more skilled in that area than obviously you know people just because these things are evolving uh, so rapidly. And I do think you know that the days of actually just sitting by the phone and waiting for the agent to to ring have gone. You know, I think people are much have to be much more proactive. They have to be much more resourceful. Much wider, you know, cast a net a great deal wider than they ever have, and and you know, make that short film or, you know, get that project up, and I and that was a big part of the you know how I evolved the course at Whopper, I think, to to hopefully accommodate those those changes so people have actually got those skills, and you know, there there's recently a couple of graduates, I guess they're kind of four or five years out, have started an online acting training program which they're just trialling now, you know, and it's fantastic, and I went over to Sydney. And you know, had a, had a chat about that about my approach to acting in that specific case, but yeah, I mean, you know, I think it's um, very different times from when I started training actors in in London. That is, you mentioned that um,
0: Whopper brought you out in 1983, yeah, uh, and just then that um, you you know pr- prior to that were training actors in London, yeah. Um, you were saying to me off air that you grew up in Hertfordshire, I sort did. of just outside of London, yeah. What was what was that like for you as a as an artistic person,
1: growing up in Hertfordshire? Yeah. Well, it was <laughs> well, you know, uh, it, it was it was fine. I mean, it was a great place to grow up in many ways. I mean, my dad worked in London. It was kind of commuters really. It's kind of London overspill, you know, when when London just kept, was bursting at the seams. Basically, they, they you know, post war, so in the fifties and sixties, they ferried off people and created places like Stevenage and you know new towns as they were then and. Uh, I was very fortunate. I went to a great school, a grammar school it was in those days, Hitchin Boys Grammar School. And uh, like most or many, many people, I had uh, an inspiring teacher, someone who at school kind of recognised something in me and kind of really, really helped me and assisted me. I mean, uh, through quite, uh, you know, a difficult, difficult kind of personal times, actually, you know, and I think I, I owe him. John Gardner, who was his name, I owe him an enormous debt, just in terms of inspiring me, you know, and to do things and, um, you know, and began to act. And then, uh, yeah, but but Hitchin itself, so, but because of its proximity to London, I mean, for example, when I was a teenager, I, I um, wrote to the Old Witch, which was the then the, the London base of the Royal Shakespeare Company, doing modern plays. Um, and I wrote to them and got a job uh, sort of ushering. So after school, you know, as a as a pimply teenager, you know, stage <laughs> struck, I'd get on the old train up to you know, up to uh, to King's Cross and go and work at the Aldrich. And I'd see you know great actors, night after night, you know, because I'd you know tear the tickets or whatever, sell the programmes, and then I'd just stand at the at the back and watch these. What actually was a golden era, you know, with Peter Brook and you know the and the the kind of great productions of the sixties and seventies. I, I was fortunate, you know, so I was lucky that I was close to London, I think. And also set a good standard, you know, I, I wasn't seeing crap, I was seeing great actors and great productions. And I think that can be, you know, really inspiring as well. And something, you know, the afterthought about with Perth was they very rarely Perth theatre's fine, but there were very rarely those, you know, you didn't really see the great companies uh, and so you really didn't say I've got to pitch it actually if I'm going to succeed at this I've got to be really bloody good.
0: Was that the kind of feeling that you came away from those sort of shows with if I'm going to do this I need to be doing it at that level?
1: Yeah it was and then um, uh, I went and trained as an actor I went to uh, drum school and uh, yeah I had a kind of an epiphany in my third year we had a thing called Creatively Fortnight which meant they hadn't got a clue what to do with us. I said, Can you, <laughs> go and create, go and create your own work, and we said all right. And um, a <laughs> bloke in my year called David Rodigan, Ram Jam Rodigan, who's now like the the king of reggae in London. If you look him up, you would ex- have a chat with him. He's an extraordinary guy. Yeah, love to. Um, uh, and he uh, and he said, uh, "Will you direct me in this one man show?" And I'm like, "Yeah, okay." And I'd struggled as an actor uh, at drama school, you know, something I'd always wanted to do, but uh, I, for some reason it wasn't working. You know, I was frustrated. I'm sure the staff were frustrated knowing that I had something, but, you know, maybe it wasn't acting. And suddenly I thought, oh, ah, oh, I can do this. Actually, I can help this guy. You know, I can have this uh, kind of insights or help him as an actor to, you know, to, you know, put ideas into his head to feed him things. And that really was a genuine sort of um, epiphany, you know, and even though I acted for a couple of years in bits and bobs after drama school, then I got a job as um, a director in um, I still think if I think of myself as anything, I think of myself as a director. Uh, And I got a job in rep um, in the north of England. Uh, you know directing you know an Agatha Christie one week a Chekhov the next a Shakespeare you know and, and so over a two year period I, I just really learnt my craft and also began to take it really seriously I think I'd buggered about a bit at drama school I hadn't really taken it seriously but again you know like with when you see those great productions I suddenly went oh if you're going to succeed at this you're going to have to be good at this okay have a good look in the mirror you know Give yourself good talking to and and, <laughs> <laughs> and um which i often do still of course but um that was a fantastic kind of period for me because i learned a lot and then i moved back to london and started directing in london professionally um a place like riverside studios a the gate theater at notting hill fantastic theaters fantastic and the different kinds of actors from the the, the kind of rep actors i would worked with kind of more challenging more demanding more politically motivated often so I was very happily directing and had a, you know, a good reputation, I think, as a, as a professional director. And then I started doing some work at a drama school. Someone invited me. I thought, this is really cool too. So I like this. You know, the teaching aspect of it. And then in um, 1980, I went to work in Berkeley in California and um, directed there. And one of the guys who was also a visiting artist was the first head of the acting department at WAPA. So he invited me over. So that's how this curious thing happened. Oh, Wow! Yeah, I know. It's amazing. <laughs> it is.
0: What a what a thread.
1: Yeah, it's it's quite extraordinary. And in 1985, uh, for a variety of reasons, I was breaking up from a long-term relationship in um, in uh, in London, and um, you know, sort of made a huge change in the middle of, you know, at the age of 35, to change my life and come live in Australia.
0: Do you remember the first time that you did? Uh, perform or direct something perhaps as a child or that kind of experience that you might have had?
1: I played, um, this kind of kind of must sound weird, but I played Macbeth when I was 17 at school. <laughs> that was an extraordinary experience. I mean, I had the normal kids things of playing the April, uh, you know, Angel Gabriel and things like that, nativity plays. There was always something about theatre that really intrigued me, you know, that that fascinated me. Yeah, I, I mean, I've given it a lot of thought actually. Why, why acting, and you know the kind of things that why why people go into acting, why they want to act. You know, I think Hemingway said, "What you need to be a great writer is an unhappy childhood." <laughs> <And you're laughs> you know, and often actors have 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 you know things in their past that, and I often ask them to ponder why you actually here on this first day at Whopper. What's brought you? You know, what what strange currents have led you to this this uh, strange profession. Yeah, so I was at Whopper for a long time, and it is a long time, and so I think that's why I started challenging myself a lot with writing these plays, with evolving. You know, I set up lots of exchanges overseas with the Conservatoire in Paris, with Russia. I took productions to Hong Kong. I took a production from from Whopper. I took, in my last year at Whopper I took all the third years over to Ireland with a play that um, to Dublin, so we performed in Dublin. And again, that's wonderful for our actors, you know, to actually see what it's like in Paris or in Moscow or in Dublin to see, you know, to go to the Abbey and see fantastic, you know, the, the Irish drama and and to meet actors in training of their own age, but you know, uh, their Dublin counterparts. So, I was very, that's another thing I was really proud of. Do you see
0: any, or have you noticed any consistent traits in some of these students who have gone on? over the you know, two and a half dec- or three decades that yeah. you were <clears throat> kind of working at Whopper, even before then and, and since then now in, in Melbourne at 16th Street and yeah. other places. Is, are there kind of consistent traits that um, people who do go on to lead creatively successful lives have?
1: Yeah, I think um, those who can figure out that it's hard work and actually you know, have come with that in mind, or work that out. Like I worked it out at drama school, and, you know, I, I think I was really frivolous for a couple of years. But, you know, I think of people like Hugh Jackman, who actually have got great work ethics, he didn't miss one class, or was always positive, always brought energy, um, curiosity. I mean, I think Hugh still is one, you know, when I was, when I think of him, I think of someone who's always interested, you know, who's always curious about the world and about what what makes it tick, what makes people tick, and that kind of passion, I think, for... Or Josh Wakely, who's created the, the Beat Bugs and Motown's program, would always take it one step further. You know, he's always really interested in, you know, pushing it beyond the limits of, of where someone else might say, oh, that's sufficient. Francis O'Connor, who I think is, is a genuinely great actor, Whopper graduate, was always someone who would go really deeply would always want to you know to quest not a great word but you know to dig down further deeper more profoundly and i think those qualities of kind of work ethic and and absolute focus absolute desire to learn to you know to go on other things that that make people successful if that's what it is but i also think it's a matter of temperament you know you often say Everyone had got into Wapping. You auditioned 900 a year, so, uh, you know. So the 18 who got in were talented. There was something in them. So, you know. But sometimes I'd find myself thinking or discussing with other staff members and say, "Well, you know, he or she has got real ability, but they, you know, I just don't think it's going to happen for them because they haven't got the temperament. They haven't got that ability." you know, to have that hard skin of, you know, because it's a life of rejection, basically, yeah. that you're signing <laughs> you're up for. yeah. You know, too, you know, too fat, too tall, too thin, too blonde, too whatever. Um, so it's those people who are resilient, who can maintain the sensitivity uh, of an artist, but also, you know, the skin of a rhinoceros to actually, you know, say, okay, I won't let that bring me down. I won't become a coffee shop actor moaning in some, you know, do you know, do you know what I mean? Yeah, yeah, and they're the kind of characteristics of people who I think have gone on to do really well from WAPA
0: What about? Are there sort of major differences? You know, you mentioned places like um, Berkeley, yeah. um, uh, Dublin, where you taught yeah, the uh, Conservatoire in uh, Paris, Paris, yeah, yeah. Um, in Sao Paulo as well. Yeah, in
1: Brazil. Yeah, yeah.
0: You know, such diverse kind of places around the world. What's the kind of differences I suppose, and are there sort of also crossovers in the way that
1: theater is executed and in the way that performers are kind of bred? Yeah, I think it's it's much more sort of standard than I'd imagined you know people face the same kinds of problems and the same sorts of issues all over the world you know and and then you, you know you don't want to sort of stereotype either and say you know Irish actors like this or but the the um, the Whopper actors who I took to the conservatoire said that what? The French actors, what they learned from them, for example, was that you know they'd be very, they will be smoking, drinking coffee, coming in and you know shrugging a, a lot, of course, a kind of you know fairly laconic, kind of throwaway sort of, and they were, or seemingly undisciplined sort of a, approach. But when they got on the floor, they said they could go. What suddenly startled them was they could go to an emotional pitch incredibly rapidly. You know, so you'd see these actors suddenly switch into gear from. You know, smoking, drinking coffee, and you know, to something quite extraordinary, which is unusual for Australian actors. You know, I think there's that thing, particularly with Aussie males, there's quite a lot of armour, a lot of you know, uh, you know, I don't want to show emotion, and that's a big thing, you know, because unless you are actually able to be open, and you know, and, and allow us in a bit, you're not going to succeed either if you keep that that armour in front of you. And so, I think being able to release that. You know, Francis Bacon, who I just wrote a, a play about the the painter who I love. talked about unlocking the valves of feeling as a painter. He he, you know, his painting wasn't cerebral. He didn't do preliminary sketches. He just it just it went to the canvas, you know, and he used his hands. Or you know, I mean, fantastic paintings. One of the great painters of the twentieth century, certainly. But I love that thing of unlocking the valves of feeling for actors, because often they're too they're shut and they're clamped shut and they won't you know, let it out. And it doesn't mean emoting or sort of, you know, doing, or, you know, indulging. It just means being able to access something. And a, a lot of actors find that really hard. And probably confronting as well. Of course it's confronting because we all want to protect ourselves, you know, mm. and actually when you take that protection away, um, it, it it's totally confronting, as you say. But the thing about acting is it's all, you know, in the vulnerability, actually. You know, often, you know, the choices you say make you know fragility vulnerability you know anger is a hopeless choice for actors, <laughs> just to be angry although ang- actors love doing that because they can access it easily mm. but actually to creak open the older you know and let us in is is harder yeah i'd often say to actors, let a bit more heart in you know don't let it all you know it some actors will talk themselves out of things that you know they want it all to happen here and finally that's not helpful I think here you, being in the yeah, head. if you keep it if you if you're a heady actor you know over intellectualizing somehow you somehow if you want us to come to you you've got to let your heart into it and actors who can't do that will struggle as well
0: i think it's interesting when you start looking at your physicality as a performer uh, as as an instrument in the same way that a um pianist would look at a piano or a painter would look at their you know their paint palette yeah and you start to consider that all of your feelings are the different kind of notes that you can play or imbue or colors that you paint with yeah exactly Um, you start shifting your perspective and then it becomes so much less personal and it's really just about uh, playing those scales enough that you can access them as and when you need
1: no that's right and there are things to be developed as well i mean i think um and it's not a tradition here to to keep training. With Americans, it is; they love to carry on training. But um, yeah, I, I think we kind of get stuck and don't see, you know, don't really allow that whole palette to to actually, you know, be be available, which is a great shame. Because yeah, I, I mean, just the more obviously, the more colours you can bring, the more textures you can bring to a role, the better it's going to be, and the more specificity, you know, all, all training should be about being very specific about text which I'm kind of very rigorous about I love how playwrights punctuate I love, you know if there's a full stop there's a full stop for a reason so um, I try and mix the emotional and also the kind of technical if you like uh, you know aspects of, uh, of it which really interests me
0: I suppose to look at a kind of bigger picture idea you know you've directed well, over 150 productions yeah. which is just an astronomical kind of feat it, I know it sounds hideous doesn't it <laughs> <laughs> it sounds amazing to me. What do you think and what have you kind of... What's your idea evolved to of uh, what makes a great production
1: from kind of, you know,
0: conception to completion?
1: I think the best directors and the best work comes from a kind of chaos. I think if, if, if directors are, are, you know, if you've you know, written it all out in your book and so-and-so moves here and, you know, Alistair moves there and, you know, he looks to the audience with, a, you know, narrowed eyes and, you know, it will have that effect... That's hopeless, you know, so I think it has to be organic. I mean, the, the actors have to sort of claim it. And I think that's why like people of Robert Lepage, the French-Canadian director who, you know, it all starts from dreams, you know, kind of, you know, he asks the actors, what dreams have you had And there? If there's something they're having in common, you know, when he did Midsummer Night's Dream in the National in London with Timothy Spall and others, they're all dreaming about mud and water. And, and that's kind of a theme in a Midsummer Night's Dream, curiously enough, you know, about the seasons being out of kilter and um and so he said it all in mud you know poor actors were <laughs> splashing about in mud they all hated it of course yeah you? because uh, you couldn't get another pub you had to you know have showers and get rid of all this sort of <laughs> stuff so but you know to get back to you think yeah i think what makes a great production is is the organic sense of it um allowing everything obviously you have to make decisions as you go down it's like a kind of a funnel in, in the end in a way but i hate conceptual productions that really are kind of dead in the middle i mean i'm always intrigued what makes us you know when we go to the theater and we've got our program and then the lights you know the curtain goes up or whatever and we're drawn into it and then often you'll find at the theater everyone just sits back and looks at the program and do you know what i mean something has there's a mismatch as this there's a disconnect and it's always intriguing to think why is that and I think it's all to do with some kind of organic truth, you know, that we've actually don't believe for a moment. I mean, when I've, you know, went out, uh, Hugh Jackman or, um, and Ewan McGregor also came out to talk to the Whopper students just before I left. Both of them said in their own way, I mean, Ewan said, uh, whether it's a Star Wars set or a black box theatre, you know, little thing, fringe theatre or something, I just look for the truth in the other actor's eyes and I ground myself in that truth really looking at someone. Am I really in relationship with you? Am I really talking to you? Or am I, you know, am I bluffing it? And Hugh said pretty much the same thing. You know, that on a film set sometimes, you know, you're saying, oh, they're not, re-, you know, an actor might say to him, come on, mate, you know, where are you? You know, let's get this going. So acting isn't about me in that kind of method tradition of, you know, beat myself up and, you know, which can be really indulgent. It's actually about you. It's about, the other person in the in the scene that's really interesting, and if you can get that you're you know if you 're genuinely listening really listening really engaged with with the person then you 're really on it and as someone said about Meryl Streep if you 're acting with her she demands you know she the way she looks at you it's like you know playing with a great tennis player you actually have to lift your game mm. because she's you know she 's making so many offers bombarding you but it 's all to do with the scene part, not it's not I'm you know it's not me. Acting is never me; it's always you, as Ingmar Bergman said, which I think is a good thing. I think uh, Mike
0: Alfreds talks about the idea of um, choices being too rehearsed into into a show, and that by the time you get to the opening night, yeah. it's just a series of rehearsed choices, as opposed to it being a kind of real life. Um, exposition or um or something yeah, like
1: that yeah I, I i think that's really interesting and i'm a big fan of mike alfred's a, a, approach you know that nothing is really you know set or you know it is different every night as a as book is so his way of you know what we, what we want is spontaneity okay this is happening now in front of us in the moment and uh his way is doing that it, giving actors freedom you know when he um there's an actress who worked with Ian McKellen on uh, in the cherry orchard she's playing Pre of Sky and she said uh, Mike Alfred's directed production he said it was amazing every night you know one night on the same line McKellen would come on and spit fury at you the next night he'd come and hold you in his arms and uh-huh. you know and you had to deal with that And that's to find that different you know that spontaneity. but um, also Samuel Beckett who you know who was a great writer and directed his own work. But everything was done completely by numbers, so you basically you go, um, okay, one, two, three, pick up the pen, four, five. I look to my right. Uh, do you see what I mean? It's mm. okay, we got that, now we'll, we'll keep going. Completely mechanical, but um, someone said the result was unparalleled spontaneity. Wow, do you see what I mean? It's like it, it was so. The actors, it's like, you know, finding something in a, in a, stat, something, you know, you have to find the organic in that highly structured thing. So they kind of had the, both, both had the same effects, but from totally different, you know, one had complete freedom. One was completely worked out, completely disciplined that every night I would take three seconds to put the cigar in my mouth and then look to my right. Do, do you see what I mean? Mm. You'd think it was a complete, you know, it it would take any sense of the organic or joy or fun or creativity out of it but in fact it had the opposite effect on the audience which i found intriguing it's amazing
0: i guess on one level being so kind of regimented almost frees the actor cerebrally to kind of feel what's going on because they don't have to in any way think about what they're doing physically
1: no that's right that's right yeah and you know i've always found that kind of you know the totally intriguing that, that whole business uh, with because basically he was a writer not a director so, but he had it so clearly in his head but you know it always, intri- it always amazed me that that was the end result of unparalleled spontaneity and I've always remembered that comment on it
0: Do you remember the first thing that you ever wrote as a, as a writer?
1: Yeah the, the first real really um, time I had to go at writing a play was a play called Going Under which is actually still my favourite play it's the first one I ever had on of mine and like lots of my plays it's really funny I mean it sounds will sound really weird but I often can't remember writing them or you know when I look at you know a collection of my plays or whatever I think I really have no idea how I wrote that and that's kind of really odd I think and I don't know whether it's (laughs) other writers experience or not (laughs) alcohol induced stuff I mean actually one of my plays um I was totally stuck totally stuck and I mean what I need is deadlines people you know I had a play called The Bushes Dance and it was going on in June so I had to write it you know and that's the best way for me to to function but I literally used to sort of get horribly drunk and you know pound the pound the keys Mm. and see what came up and then look at it the next day and see what what, and it kind of worked out great in the end but the first play I wrote yeah Going Under was based below the stage of a Sydney theatre with an Aboriginal play going on above them which is kind of an interesting sort of notion. So they were ba- basically having to work for the. We never meet the Aboriginal. We hear the, the the play or musical going on and some of the events in it, but it's really about the white blokes who are working under the stage. And the idea for that came when I was um, buying my house in London. Um, I took a job uh, as stage manager on uh, a, a South African musical called Ipitombi, which is all black South African cast. And so I sat, you know, under the stage every night with these often incredibly racist in London lads, you know, and that always sort of remained with me and I and that became, you know, a kind of a, a huge part of this play about what's going on up there and actually what, you know. So it's about Australian ra- racist uh, ideas and so forth. Yeah, so so I remember that and also, a uh, play I wrote called Paradise, which is probably the most autobiographical of my place. Although, of course, they all are to a degree, but sort of most obviously autobiographical, which was set in Berkeley uh, in 1980, which was the year John Lennon was murdered and also the year Reagan was elected. So it's kind of the end of something with John Lennon's death and the beginning of something, you know, economic rationalism, the cold yeah. 80s really. Um, you know, And that was kind of interesting because I had to... I wrote some quite personal things in it which part of it was about a, a relationship I had and the uh and that caused a bit of a fuss with that person's family just because you know you you know and I often think about that you know d- when you're writing are you you know should you exploit uh, you know other people's lives your own relationships your own world so I never went there again overtly but I read a play called um, The Devil's Tunic which was nothing about me at all there was no kind of me Chris figure I mean there's only one play that was but when I look back at it all my life at that time the disruption in my life of a divorce and uh, the changes in my life um, are there like a map you know so it's a a bizarre feeling looking back at that actually because you know there's nothing in it that I was writing about overtly about divorce but you know but in it, if I look at it now or read it now, I think, oh, God, you dredged that up from somewhere. <laughs> <laughs> and you have to, and that that's the painful... And that's why I can't remember writing them, I think, is I just want to forget them or forget what, um, you know, you have to put what from your heart. You I guess that comes back it. to what you were saying before about allowing your yeah, heart in as, as
0: an actor. You know, the same is true of any art form, I think.
1: It is. I mean, I was interested, Sam Shepard's, you know, the playwright saying it, you know, if he, if he hadn't been a writer, he would have gone off the deep end. In other words, he'd probably gone bonkers, you know, and I think there is that, that aspect to it.
0: How significant is it, do you think, to kind of imbue your own life's tapestry into your work, regardless of what you're doing?
1: Well, I think it's subconscious in my case, you know, I don't consciously sort of do it, but, um, yeah, it's, it, it's a curious one for me, actually, uh, about all that, and, um, I think I wrote a play um, called Before I Get Old and my brother died when he was 18 and I was 12 he died of leukemia um, under you know most horrible circumstances you know it's a terrible thing to see someone die like that and a particularly young man you know he's 18. And I tried to write about that in in that play and I did a kind of version of it because it's haunted me you know because growing up in england you never deal with your you know there's yeah. no support system or counseling or anything like that when you know in the 60s in england so there'd been stuff that i'd been dealing with you know had submerged and put away so i tried to do that but actually i couldn't because there was something stopping me and i'm not sure what it was but i wouldn't go where i needed to actually have gone with it to make it successful interesting as you get older you know you're pondering all these you know i mean my brother's death is more vivid to me now thinking about it than it was then i think
0: what do you kind of attribute that to
1: again some kind of self-protection i suppose or not wanting you know to really yeah i I don't know um and i you know i wish i'd dealt with it earlier because we we often don't and these things do sort of stay with you about how it affected me, and and I think, um, sorry, there's a bit of a somber conversation. Oh, right. I'm sorry about this. That's <laughs> all right, let's get some laughs into it. No, um, yeah, but kind of interesting stuff for me looking back, thinking what effect that had on the twelve-year-old me, because um, it did change me. I know because people, uh, you know, the the teachers at school apparently told my parents I had really changed, and I think I had from a very sort of outgoing. Happy kid to to one who is a bit lost, and hence coming back to the conversation about that teacher, I'm John Gardner, who who kind of um, scooped me up and helped me out of that mess.
0: I think experiences like that will most definitely change a person, particularly yes. out of, in a formative sort of age. Yeah. Do you think that
1: uh, that art and artistic expression can play a role in catharsis? I think they can. I, I'm sure. I'm sure that's a part of it. Um, and I think even for myself I mean my, my pa- you know I don't think much of my paintings to be quite honest but um, you know some people do I've had you know, a few exhibitions and sold quite a lot of work I think it's amazing oh thank you <laughs> thank you um, there's some nice ones downstairs i will show you yeah, um, yeah. and uh, uh, yeah and, and for me if I go a day without doing something I mean I felt terrible last night because I was you know jet lagged and exhausted but I actually put a canvas up on that wall and started doing something I felt a lot a lot a lot better about it and if i go a day without doing something i i, I, I get frustrated with myself and angry with myself mm. i you know that i always need to be doing something to you know to deal with all the things going on in my head <laughs> <laughs> i read a great uh, quote that you said which was when you get stuck as a writer you go to painting yes that's right um yeah, and that was a great suggestion. Actually, that that was um, a Hugh Jackman suggesting because we was we talking about being blocked as a writer. I was completely blocked, and um, and he we were just talking, you know, over an email actually, um, you know, just sort of why, why that should be. And he talked about something when he had problems hitting a high note that he just you know screwed him up. I thought he, he you know, I wouldn't be able to do it that night. And he just mentioned that I think a friend of his in New York, I think it was a musician anyway, went, you know, and was blocked writing the notes and went to see someone and they said, well, don't just slog away at that, try something else. And, um, you know, so I, you know, bought some paints, I, you know, I, I haven't painted at all in, you know, except the last sort of four years or something. And um, that made sense to me, you know, rather than slogging away at something, find another portal, you know, and that portal will open and then, you know, affected my writing. Then I wrote this play about Francis Bacon. So it all worked out. Oh wow. (laughs) (laughs) Which was on at the old FETS last year.
0: Yeah, yeah. I think, uh, I think kind of carrying the momentum is the important thing as opposed to kind of beating your head against a wall if you kind of come up against that sort of block.
1: Yeah, it is because it was really frustrating that, that writing block. And I felt, um, but luckily enough I was commissioned to write a play for Dublin uh, for the Smock Alley Theatre and the, the Gaiety School which is the National Theatre School of Ireland to write their graduating classes play and I turned on I remember saying to Patrick Sutton who runs the school look I'm really kind of blocked as a writer and he said oh god don't tell me that you know because he was you know paying me to to write a play but um, again i work well if I say okay that play opens on June the 3rd in Dublin so you better bloody write something and um, that's always good for me. Parameters. Um, it really is, yeah. I mean, like today, you know, if someone said, you know, that would be great if someone said, you know, we wanted to write something that's going on in September, I'd say fantastic. Otherwise, yeah. i just watch um, the basketball, you know, <laughs> <laughs> watch, see how the LA Clippers have lost again.
0: Yeah. <laughs> well, thank you so much for, oh, for having me in your house, Chris, and, and surrounded by your amazing artwork oh, to, thank you. to have a little chat. Um, I finish all of my conversations with one question. And my question is, what makes you silly?
1: What makes me silly is, I don't know, the absurdity of life, I suppose, <laughs> you know, seeing that actually, um, I love that Francis Bacon quote where he says, it's um, uh, it's also meaningless, we may as well be extraordinary. Yeah. <laughs> and I think, um,
0: yeah, I I, I, think,
1: I don't know, I think, yeah, I think I'm a deeply frivolous person, really, and I wish I could sort of a bit more serious in the autumn of my life <laughs> it doesn't look likely I
0: think uh, I think irreverence and silliness is the kind of um, the, the key to well it, it.
1: it is actually it is and actually going back to what you were asking about with the, the, what made particular people successful from Whopper graduates I think that's certainly an element in their personality that ability to be you know not to be solemn but to be silly it's a great quote life's too important to be taken seriously well it's true isn't it It is, absolutely. So I might as well just muck about. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) Which I've been doing for, yeah, a very long time now, mucking about. Mm, Well, here's to mucking about for much longer. Thank you very much. Thank you very much, (laughs) Chris. Thanks.